I'm Matt Lewis. I'm an author and historian, and I love the Tudors Dynasty podcast. So subscribe, listen, learn, and enjoy. This is the Tudors Dynasty podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Who killed the princes in the tower? That's the age-old question, isn't it? It's a mystery that has been left unsolved for centuries. On today's show, I welcome back author and historian Matthew Lewis to chat on the subject. And to make it even more fun, I asked my listeners what their theories are and what stories they had heard. But before we get started, I want to say hello and thank you to my newest patrons, Ashley C., Susan G., Anita J., Danielle C., Brooke, and Alyssa R., Thank you to the six of you, as well as all of my amazing existing patrons. Thank you. As patrons, you have access to all kinds of cool stuff like the tutor course, exclusive podcast content, and free books. Want to learn more? Go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tutors Dynasty and click become a patron to see available options. I had so much fun chatting with you all on social media in 2020, and I have some exciting stuff planned for you in 2021. On Tuesdays, I'll be doing Name That Place, where I'll share an image of a building and you try to guess its name. To help, I'll give you two clues. And then on Wednesdays, I'll do a Tudor Spotlight, where I pick one lesser known character and give you a brief history on them. Then it's Thursday's Feature Book Day, where I share an image of a book and give you a brief description of its content. Lastly, we all love to test our tutor knowledge. So on Friday Fun Day, we test our knowledge on tutor history with one trivia question. See how much you know and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as at Tutors Dynasty. Be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to the podcast as well. As always, thanks for listening. All right, let's get on with the show. Matthew, Happy New Year and welcome back. Thank you very much for having me back. What a fantastic way to start 2021. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Sitting here talking about the princes in the tower, it's like my dream start to the year. So, <laughs> Well, I'm happy to do that for you. And I'm so excited to talk about this topic because it's really one that I haven't done a whole lot of reading on. Um, but I've always felt like when you look at the big picture of the princes in the tower, who was the person who gained the most from their disappearance? And that is the one who is responsible. So today we're going to talk about the princes of the tower with Matthew. And I really want to go through everything that was kind of discussed on social media leading up to this episode. So why don't we really just start from the beginning and kind of talk about their family tree a little bit for those who may not be familiar, who were the princes in the tower related to? Almost everyone in England in the 15th century um, is the short answer. Um, So they are the two sons of King Edward IV, the first Yorkist king and his wife, Elizabeth Woodville. Um, They have a whole clutch of sisters, the oldest of whom is Elizabeth of York, who goes on to marry Henry VII and become the the mother of the Tudor dynasty, if you like. Um, 
But if we spread this wider, I mean, they're they're from the House of York, so they're they're related to people like Richard, Duke of York. Um, their uncles are Richard III and George, Duke of Clarence. Their aunts are a Duchess of Burgundy, the Duchess of Suffolk, the Duchess of Exeter. So they're even just on that side of the family, they're well connected. Um, but their grandmother is Cecily Neville, so that brings in the whole Neville family with with Warwick the Kingmaker and people like that forming part of their family trees. And even beyond that, Cecily Neville brings Beaufort blood into the into the mix. Um, so her mother was Joan Beaufort. So she's related, therefore, to all of the Dukes of Somerset, to Lady Margaret Beaufort, whose son goes on to take the throne from the House of York. And then if you look through the Woodvilles, um, they're related by marriage to an awful lot of English nobility. So when Edward IV marries Elizabeth Woodville, she comes to court with a clutch of brothers and sisters who corner the marriage market. So by marriage, they're kind of related to the, the Earls of Pembroke. They're related to um, the, the Norfolk, the, the Duke of Norfolk. Um, one of Elizabeth Woodville's brothers becomes Bishop of Salisbury. Um, they're related to the Earls of Kent, the Earls of Arundel. Um, all of these huge families can be plotted in the the family tree of the princes in the tower. So it's part of, I think, the effects of the Hundred Years' War followed by the Wars of the Roses, this kind of decimation of the nobility so that the the marriage pool is so much smaller that everybody is really related to everybody else. And this is a, a, a fairly huge issue during the Wars of the Roses that essentially everybody is everybody's cousin. Now, when we talk about the princes, we always associate them with the Tower of London. And I think it's easy for people to forget that the Tower was originally a royal residence and not always the the torture chamber we know from the Tudors. Can you explain, Matthew, what led to the princes both being placed in the Tower of London? Absolutely. So it's an important thing about the Tower of London that it isn't this dark place yet. It becomes much more um, of that under the Tudors, really. And that's where it gets the really dark part of its reputation. In the, the medieval period, it was definitely used as a prison, um, only sporadically successful. You know, lots of people actually escaped from the Tower of London. Um, but it was also a royal mint, a royal armory. It was a royal menagerie. You know, the king kept his polar bears and lions and everything there. But throughout the medieval period, it was the traditional place that kings went to prepare for their coronations. So when Edward V arrives in London in the aftermath of his father's death in May um, 1483. He's installed, he's actually initially installed at the Bishop of London's palace. Um, but then there's some discussions in council about where he should be lodged more permanently. And it's it's generally accepted, decided, agreed that he should go to the Tower of London because that's where he'll be to prepare for his coronation anyway. So rather than move him from the Bishop of London's palace to somewhere else and then move him onto the Tower afterwards, the decision is taken to to put him in the Tower straight away. So reading anything darker back into that really depends on your your impression of Richard III and how early in this process you think he, he starts wanting the throne, plotting for the throne. Um, so it's possible to see their move to the tower as a, a, a terrible, evil thing if you think Richard III is the monster. But the truth is, it was kind of... Um, you know, it went through council without any opposition. It was just generally accepted that it was a sensible option. So Edward V is installed there. And so when Edward arrives in London, his mother and his sisters and his little brother, Richard, Duke of York, uh, have gone into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. And so Richard 
um, as in his capacity as protector, sends a delegation to Westminster Abbey to ask Elizabeth Woodville to allow um, Richard, Duke of York, to come out of sanctuary so that he can attend his brother's coronation. Um, again, depending on your impression of Richard III, he either sends a delegation led by the Archbishop of Canterbury to ask for this, or he surrounds sanctuary with armed men and threatens to breach sanctuary and drag the boy out kicking and screaming if his mother doesn't let him come. So that's how the the younger brother ends up coming out of sanctuary at Westminster and going to join his brother at the Tower of London. Um, and again, in the early records, there's not much sense of, of them being prisoners there. It's believed they were initially installed in the Garden Tower, which is now called the Bloody Tower. Um, but it was then the Garden Tower. Um, and later on, they're moved into, from what we understand from the, the sources, they're moved into the White Tower. Um, people tend to see that as the point at which they become prisoners, but there's not really any sense that they are under lock and key, you know, in a dungeon somewhere. They're simply moved from the Garden Tower to the White Tower at some point, we think. Were they housed together? As far as we know, yes. There's no reason to think they were kept apart when they were at the Tower of London. There's some sources that talk about them being seen playing in the gardens together, shooting bows and arrows um, in the garden and, and playing together. So there's no sense that they were kept apart and, and away from each other and, and secluded and locked away at this point. Okay, so now we lead, of course, to the whodunit part. So let's let's look at the list of suspects. Um, and when I put the call out on social media, of course, the, the list of villains um, was pretty much the normal stuff. I, I saw Margaret Beaufort, Richard III, um, Buckingham, Henry VII, and even Anne Neville. Did they miss anybody who should be on this list? Um, I think John Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, crops up sometimes. Um, he acquired the Dukedom of Norfolk, which technically was legally his, but which Edward IV had used a bit of legal chicanery to keep um, for his son, Richard, Duke of York, who was also Duke of Norfolk. Um, so when Richard um, becomes protector, so they're all called Richard, so I have to work out who I'm talking about. Um, when Richard becomes protector, he gives John Howard the Dukedom of Norfolk, which should have been his by inheritance. So the, there's a theory that suggests that the Dukedom of Norfolk Norfolk was John Howard's reward for doing away with the princes for Richard. Um, and obviously he gained it because the position was vacant after the boys had been killed. Um, and I guess I would only suggest that you could add potentially hundreds and maybe thousands of names to the list of people that we just don't know. You know, it could almost have been anyone who was in London in, in the spring and summer of 1483. Well, let's look at some of the, the fun theories that came from social media. And I had a good time reading some of these. The, the first one is the princes were vampires and they had to be killed. Well, obviously, if they were vampires, they definitely had to be killed. Um, I mean, the Woodvilles, you know, they weren't widely liked. There were accusations of witchcraft against Elizabeth Woodville's mother, Jacquetta. Um, so it's entirely possible. I mean, Edward V had spent most of his life uh, on the borders of Wales and it gets pretty wild out by Wales. So, you know, I'm not sure we can discount any of these stories. But clearly, if they were vampires, they had to go. <laughs> they had to. <laughs> they had to. I mean, you're not going to let vampires on the throne, are you? you never get rid of them. It's, it's enough having people in power who are bloodsuckers without 
literal bloodsuckers. Oh my gosh. Okay, the next one was Richard sent them to obscure safety at Sheriff Hutton, after which Edward died of cancer, and Richard became a lay scholar amongst monks. I'd never heard this before. Is this one that you've heard? And it's a pretty detailed theory, I guess. Um, and I think it's in two parts. So the idea that they were sent away by Richard to, to safety, I think has an awful lot of mileage in it. I think it's quite likely if you look at Richard's um, period in the North, he has castles like Sheriff Hutton, Middleham, Pontefract. We get a mention in 1483 of Pontefract of of potentially some royal children being there. It's really obscure um, mention from a, a visiting Silesian knight, um, but it, it's possible to translate it in a way that suggests there were royal children at Pontefract Castle. Um so I think the possibility that Richard sent them away, and I think, you know, people quite often use the term that the princes, if they survived, they must have escaped. So that presupposes that Richard wanted to kill them, either to keep them or, or kill them. And the only way that they would have survived his reign was to escape. Um, but I think there's an awful lot to be said for the idea that Richard would have wanted to move them out of London to somewhere that was much more secure. And the north of England is the obvious place. It's where Richard has lived and held power for more than a decade. And it's it's packed with castles that are filled with men utterly loyal to Richard, who he knows and trusts, um, and where he would most likely be able to to keep those boys safe from any plots to, to spring them out and use them against him. Um, I mean, the second parts are possible. Um, there's absolutely no evidence that Edward had any kind of illness or, or would have died of cancer or anything like that. Um, there's no evidence that that Richard became a lay scholar, but you know these things are if they if they did survive beyond 1483, then we have to wonder what did happen to them, and all of these things become possibilities. Then I guess another theory from social media was that they were murdered by Anne Neville and the Duke of Buckingham, and they were put in a chest, weighed down with rocks, and thrown into the Thames. Again, it's pretty detailed, isn't it? I mean, someone seems to know exactly what's gone on. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. In some of these uh, some of these events, so I think Buckingham um, is someone who definitely has motive, means, and opportunity. He leads a rebellion against Richard III in October 1483 that I think is is aimed at putting Buckingham on the throne. So he has uh, a perfectly good, legitimate claim to the throne um, through his descent from Edward III. So I think October 1483 is about Buckingham making his own bid for the throne. So the the potential then is that he does away with the princes in the tower to clear the, the path for himself and also to discredit Richard. Um, and Neville, I am less convinced by, um, definitely not acting with Buckingham um, and probably not acting al- alone either. I think it's possible that if Richard was considering it, then his wife, you know, the woman he's been married to for more than 10 years is someone he may well have discussed it with. Um, so she may well have known what happened, but I don't see her being, I don't see her being involved with Buckingham at all. Um, and I'm not sure I see her acting alone in this either. Um, the story that they're put into chests and, and weighted down with rocks and thrown into the Thames is one that crops up fairly often in sources in the, particularly in the early 16th century. So at the same time that Thomas More is writing that incredibly detailed account of them being smothered with pillows and buried under a staircase in the tower, you have several other accounts being written round about the same time, one of them actually by one of Thomas More's brothers-in-law. Um, and he talks about them being locked in a chest and thrown either into the Thames or sailed out into the channel and thrown into the channel. Um, 
So we, and I think that's just a symptom of the lack of certainty about what happened. You know, Moore's story has stuck, but plenty of other people at the same time were writing completely different versions of events, including versions that had at least one of the princes escaping. We've talked about a few of the suspects already, but one that we haven't discussed at all is Margaret Beaufort. And something that I want you to address, I think is going to be a subject that comes up quite often, and we really try to debunk it every time it does. But people often say that Margaret Beaufort always wanted her son to be king, that that was her mission in life was to make Henry Tudor king of England. Do you want to throw out your opinion on this matter? Um, I want to know why you hate me making me talk about Margaret Beaufort and the princes in the tower. I mean, I thought we were friends, but no. Throw me under this bus. Um, no. So Margaret Beaufort, you know, is one of the most controversial, I guess, of the the suspects who crops up um, and has started cropping up more and more in recent years. And whether that is entirely down to Philippa Gregory's version of events, I'm not entirely sure. Um no, I don't think for one second that Margaret Beaufort wanted her son on the throne from the moment he was born. Um, I don't think she's that kind of fanatically obsessed woman. What I think about Margaret Beaufort is that she saw an opportunity in the spring of 1483. So we know that just prior to Edward IV's death, she'd been quite advanced through negotiations with Edward to have Henry return to England and potentially marry one of Edward's daughters. Um, Edward's death and the succession of a, a minor would have put the kibosh on that. You know, no one's going to want to allow an exile um, from a rival house back into the country while there's a minor on the throne. And then Edward uh, Richard III takes the throne um, from Edward V. And at that point, there's no sign of, of Henry being allowed back. Um, so I think Margaret realises that she's lost her opportunity for her son to come home. But what I think she also realises is that in all of that tumult, there is an opportunity for for some disruption, to to mix things up, to cause some trouble. Um, the successions of, of kings is always a time throughout the medieval period. Almost every succession is accompanied by some form of rebellion or revolt or upset. Um, and I think perhaps Margaret Beaufort, you know, well aware of this, sees an opportunity to stir up a bit of trouble. We know she's involved in the October 1483 uprisings by Buckingham, um, who she is related to um, through the, the Beaufort line. So does she encourage Buckingham to try and take the throne from Richard on the basis that that's the way she gets Henry home? Because it only seems to be after Buckingham's execution that Henry VII is talked about as a potential claimant to the throne. So I think even up until October 1483, Margaret Beaufort isn't necessarily looking to get her son onto the throne, but she's looking to shake things up and change things for her benefit. Um, and I think she definitely makes the most. So my my real theory on this is that Margaret Beaufort tells Elizabeth Woodville that Richard has murdered her sons. We know that they're in communication in sanctuary through Dr. Lewis Kerleon. So this is how they arrange the the marriage between Henry Tudor and Elizabeth of York. And I just wonder whether as part of those discussions, you know, Elizabeth Woodville is locked away in sanctuary, deprived of news, um, must be worrying about what's happening, what might have happened to her sons. And I wonder whether Margaret Beaufort sends in word that they're, they're, they've been killed, they've been done away with by Richard, 
We know that the Crowland Chronicler talks about a rumour that the princes had been killed being started as part of this October rebellion. So he never talks about it being anything other than a rumour to fuel a rebellion. So clearly this is seen as a way to destabilise Richard. Um, so does Margaret Beaufort send word to Elizabeth Woodville to say, you know, I'm sorry, your your worst fears are true. Your sons have been murdered. But if you come over to us and you agree to allow one of your daughters to marry my son, we can get this coalition against Richard and we can fight back. Because I think if you look at what happens in early 1484, I think perhaps Elizabeth Woodville changes her mind, um, at least recognises the possibility that her sons are still alive. Um, so I don't think Margaret Beaufort is involved in murdering the princes in the tower because my personal theory is that no one murdered them in 1483. Um, I don't think she can be discounted as a suspect as easily as lots of people like to think. Uh, she was definitely up to her neck in plotting and treason um, by the end of the summer of 1483. Um, and I think perhaps she was willing to tell tell Elizabeth Woodville that her sons could be dead in order to bolster her own cause and get the, the Woodville faction on side with the, the Buckingham Rebellion of October. Did I get myself out from under the bus okay there? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you did. And I think... The, you know, the reason I brought her up is because I, I wanted to get into the theories and and to have you answer what you've learned in your research. And I think when it comes to Margaret Beaufort, the thing I always hear or I always read is that um, she had access to the princes in the tower. Can you address this? So I would argue that she did. Um, I think you have to view the access to the princes in the tower in one of two extreme ways. Either it was only Richard III and possibly Buckingham as the two most powerful men in the kingdom who really strictly controlled access to whatever room in the Tower of London those boys were in. And, you know, there was maybe one or two other people with the keys who were too frightened not to do what Richard said, in which case, if they died, it's Richard or Buckingham that did it. But I think you also have to accept that the Tower of London is a, a fully functioning working royal palace at this time with hundreds of people coming and going all day, delivering meat and wine and beer, you know, coming in to collect coin from the mint, um, people looking after the animals in the menagerie, people coming to petition you know, the, the royal council or whatever else. Council meetings are going on. Um, there's a, a garrison there, you know, soldiers coming in and out. Um, there's all kinds of servants, people working in the kitchens. Is it impossible that one of these people could have wandered up a staircase where they weren't necessarily supposed to be? I don't think that's impossible. Um, people were taking food to the princes. So could someone have poisoned their food um, in the kitchens before it even went up to them? You know, I think lots of people will say that no one had access to the princes. And I think you either have to believe that no one but Richard III had access or a lot more people than people like to think had access. And I think this is where people like Margaret Beaufort can come into the mix. You know, she's a, a wealthy, influential, well-connected woman. And despite what happens after the summer of 1483, during the summer of 1483, her and her husband, Lord Stanley, are in really high favour. Um, Margaret Beaufort carries Queen Anne's train at the coronation on the 6th of July. She walks immediately behind the Queen. Um, and Thomas Stanley carries the constable's mace behind Richard. Um, so they are in high favour and potentially, you know, have as much access to the, the tower as any wealthy noble 
gentry person would have had at the time. I'm not saying they could necessarily swan in and say, I fancy seeing Edward V today. And I, I've said before, I'm not, I don't picture tiny Margaret Beaufort creeping up a spiral staircase with a knife above her head with the psycho music playing, you know, like she did the deed herself. <laughs> Was she in a position to purchase the deaths of the princes in the tower if she'd wanted? Could she have arranged access to somebody? I absolutely think she could, as well as people like Buckingham, um, John Howard, and, and many, many other people could have done it if they wanted to. But, you know, that's my that's my view of the way the tower worked. You know, there's an incident um, that's quite often talked about in the, oh, I think it's 1420s or 1430s, when Henry VI's uncle, uh, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, um, rolls up to the tower uh, and tries to ride through the gate and he's told that he's not allowed in because he's not on the list of people who are currently permitted to enter the tower. But this is such an odd occurrence that chroniclers note the fact that this happened, that a, a duke was prevented entry and that there was a list of people who were currently allowed in. Um, so I think, you know, most days, dozens, potentially hundreds of people are going in and out of the tower all day long. I always imagine that the princes were locked in a room. Is that a, a incorrect assumption? The bottom line is we don't know. So we don't know exactly where they're kept. Um, as I said, we get talk about them being seen playing in the garden, shooting with bows and arrows in the summer. Unfortunately, none of these sightings are, are ever dated. So we don't know whether this is while Edward V is still preparing for his coronation or whether it's after Richard III's coronation. We just don't know how late into the year they were last seen. Um, I think most people's idea that they were imprisoned, you know, as in locked in a room and kept under guard with everybody else away from them, um, comes from Dominic Mancini's um, talk about them being removed to, to inner parts of the tower. You know, that's almost as much as he says, you know, they were seen less and less. Um, but this could be a symptom of the fact that there were still active Woodville plots throughout the rest of 1483 that would undoubtedly have been aimed at freeing the princes in the tower and putting Edward V back on the throne. So potentially they were better guarded. Um, but I don't, there's no account that tells us that they were placed under lock and key, you know, in some dank dungeon and deprived of everything. You know, there's talk in uh, one of the sources that their servants that came with Edward V from Wales are removed. But if you think there's a Woodville plot to free them, then those people who were part of a Woodville household in Wales are going to be suspicious. So, Rich, But Richard replaces those servants with his own men. It's not like he leaves them without people to look after them. It's We're told that Richard replaces um, the, the staff that came with them from Wales with his own people who he trusts. Um, again, it comes down to what you think of Richard III. Was that so that he could clear the path to murder them? Or was that to just increase security around two boys who might be the target's of a, a rescue attempt. Oh, the who done it? You know, I I always I I don't want to say it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But you see, that even the who done it presupposes the fact that they were murdered and that they died somehow in 1483. Um, I mean, what you talked about at the start in the introduction, talking about you know who who really gains the most from their disappearance. And I think most people will always assume that Richard III is the one who gains from their disappearance. But I would question whether even that is true. So Richard III, by the time the boys disappear, Richard III is already king. He's already been crowned. He's on the throne. 
So he doesn't have to disappear them in order to get the throne. He's already king. And does Richard really gain? Well, he faces a rebellion in October 1483, led by Buckingham, which is aimed at deposing him. And Crowlin tells us that this is done on the basis of a rumour that Richard has killed the boys. So if he's killed the boys, he hasn't gained. He's driven a chunk of the country into rebellion. And then through the, the following year, you know, he has to face all kinds of threats of invasion from Henry Tudor. And then he has to deal with rumours that he's planning to marry his niece. And and by the end of the summer of 1485, he's dead on the battlefield at Bosworth. So how much does Richard actually gain from this? I think you can look at people like Buckingham and say, well, he leads a rebellion with the aim of taking the throne for himself, you know, completely out of the blue. He's been in the political wilderness under Edward IV for all of his life. Suddenly he's propelled to um, the, the forefront when Richard comes to power. And then he leads a rebellion just a, a few months, three months after Richard's coronation. He leads a rebellion to, to eject him from the throne and I think to take it for himself. So, okay, we know that that rebellion fails, but Buckingham would have gone into it assuming he was going to succeed. So does he kill the princes, again, to to clear the path for himself and to stir up trouble for Richard? Because that's what the story of the princes in the tower's death does. No one has any proof, but just the rumour of it destabilises Richard's crown. And when we look at people like Margaret Beaufort's involvement, um, and I don't think, I don't go any further than suggesting she might have started a rumour that the princes were dead, but Henry VII benefits from the story that the princes in the tower are dead. So by October, well, by November 1483, he's being proclaimed King of England on Bodmin Moor. Um, and by August 1485, he's wearing the crown of England. So if we look at who really gains, I would question how much Richard III gains from doing away with his nephews, because actually it's really bad publicity and it all comes back to bite him and other people do far better out of the next couple of years than he does. And it all goes back to really Richard declaring the children of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville illegitimate. Wouldn't you say that's the start of this whole process? Again, it has to come down to your uh, understanding of Richard III and his motives in that spring and summer. So um, I always say that you could kind of boil it down to three versions of Richard. Um, You've got the the ruthless, ambitious Richard, who's just been waiting for a chance to make his own bid for the throne, um, who you know orchestrates all of these events and has the boys declared illegitimate to, to make himself king. Then I think you have the Richard that some people see who kind of bumbles and stumbles his way through 1483, kind of lurching from crisis to crisis until he ends up in a position where the only way he can protect himself is to concoct this story that his nephews are illegitimate and to take the throne for himself um, as a a way of of self-preservation, really. And then I think the third version is the the slightly more honest Richard who finds himself confronted by a difficult situation. He goes to London thinking he's going to act as protector for his nephew while he's young and he finds all of these factions squabbling in London when he gets there, tries his best to sort all of that out, and is then presented, um, we're told by Robert Stillington, the, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, with the story and evidence, and it's important to say that there is documentary evidence that people examine during this period, that he's, pre- he's presented with evidence that his nephews are illegitimate and are not entitled 
to the throne, which makes Richard the rightful king. Um, I mean, I'm a Ricardian, I guess, so you know, I'm going to favour the latter version of of those events. But I think there's evidence to support it. So, as I say, the documents talk about the the evidence that is examined and accepted by the people in London, um, and I think. I always say that the big mistake that Richard III made was going on his Northern Progress, which he goes on kind of within a fortnight of his coronation. He evacuates London, um, heads uh, west a little bit, and then up north and ends up back um, in what we might call home at Middleham. And for me, if this was a man who had desperately wanted to take the throne, you don't evacuate the capital city then and leave all of your enemies to think about it. The, The fact that he goes on this progress to the north and wants to get back to Yorkshire smacks to me of a person who didn't want this, who has found all of the stuff that's happened in London really hard and trying and testing and just wants to go home and get away from it all, um, which I don't think plays into the idea that he wanted the throne at any point. And I guess the the big accusation with the illegitimacy story is, is its convenience. People will always say, the emergence of the story of the the bigamy of Edward IV is too convenient to be true. Um, again, I'm a Ricardian, so I'm going to argue the opposite. Um, I would say it's anything but convenient. You know, Richard has, since the death of Edward IV, his brother, he has extracted oaths of allegiance from everybody in the North before he leaves. The first thing he does when he gets to London is extract oaths of allegiance to Edward V from everybody in London. He makes preparations for Edward V's coronation. Um, He calls people to be knighted for Edward V's coronation. He starts having currency minted in the name of Edward V. These are extreme lengths to go to for someone who doesn't plan to go through with the coronation, particularly, I think, the oaths of loyalty, because those are um, religiously binding oaths that people swore, and they were really difficult to undo. So if Richard had any sense that he wanted to take the throne for himself causing people to swear allegiance to Edward V was um, suicide for his cause, really. It was undoing um, his possibilities of becoming king before they even happened. But I would also wonder, so if we allow for a second that Robert Stillington, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, is the man who brings a story to Edward IV, uh, sorry, to Richard III, that Edward IV was married before he married Elizabeth Woodville. So, Legally, that makes that second marriage bigamous, makes the children illegitimate, and means that Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, can't inherit the throne. And those are just kind of legal facts you can argue a little bit around the niceties. So if the pre-contract story is true, then Richard III is the rightful king of England. In terms of convenience, I would wonder when, before the death of Edward IV, could this story possibly have come out? It seems to have been part of what led to the downfall of George, Duke of Clarence, So Edward IV and Richard III's brother, George, is executed in 1478 um, on charges of treason. And part of the attainder in Parliament against him talks about him plotting to bring down the king and the queen and their children. And there's a lot of suspicion that part of the reason George had to be executed was that he was threatening to reveal this pre-contract story. We know that um, just after... Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, Robert Stillington goes through this kind of rocketing rise in in power and position and gets his bishopric, um, becomes Lord Chancellor for a while, um, Keeper of the Privy Seal, all those kinds of things 
Um, and then those offices suddenly disappear from him and he gravitates towards George Duke of Clarence. And when George is arrested and put in the tower to be tried for treason, Robert Stillington is also arrested and imprisoned for a period of time and then given a pardon later on for unspecified offences. Um, so if we think that the, the potential to release the story about the bigamy of Edward IV cost a royal duke his life, Edward was willing to kill his own brother to protect this story. Who is then going to swan into Edward IV's court and sort of start saying, you know, you know what I know? Do you know what I know? Do you want to know what I know? You're not going to do it, are you? Because it would literally be putting your head on the block. Uh, you would, li- you might as well just put the noose around your own neck um, and, and you know, jump off a bridge or something. You know, it would be suicide to to bring that story to light while Edward IV is still alive. He has literally killed his own brother to keep it quiet. So if it's true, I think. The spring of 1483, after Edward IV's death, is the first and only time that it could have come out into the light. I think anyone who tried to bring it into the light before then would have been, it would have been madness. As with so many things in history, this is another one where all is not as it would appear. It is. I mean, it's such a difficult thing because it comes down to interpretation and there's so much detail that you can read, but there are always such big holes in the events of 1483 and the story of Richard III as king. And, you know, I, when I wrote a biography of him, I tried to go back to look at, you know, he's 30 when all of this happens. So what can we learn about him in the 30 years prior to this happening? And you just don't see examples of him being ruthless, vicious, nasty, spiteful, murdering kind of person. He just isn't that man. He's obsessed with justice. He's incredibly pious, um, you know, perhaps even conspicuously pious, even for that period. Um, and there's no sense that he's a liar, um, that he would make up this kind of story that needed religious backing. And I think if you look at people like, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury crowns Richard on the 6th of July, and he doesn't say, well, I'm not crowning you. This is clearly dodgy. You've obviously lied about bigamy. Um, just to get the throne for yourself, Thomas Borchet is quite happy to put the throne on Richard's head on the sixth of June. Uh, sorry, the crown to put the throne on his head. That'd be a different story. <laughs> uh, Thomas Borchet is quite happy to put the crown on Richard's head on the sixth of July, fourteen eighty-three. And Thomas Borchet is also the man who goes and gets the younger of the princes in the tower out of sanctuary. And at no point does he censure Richard and say, "You know, I gave my word that this boy would be safe." And what have you done? You've killed him. You know, Thomas Borchet is happy to work with Richard for the rest of his reign. I think if you look at some of those human actions around what's going on, so we have these documentary holes, but you can look at the human actions and reactions of the people who are there. And I think you can start to bridge some of those gaps and fill them in a little bit without ever being 100% certain. Well, let's get back to the theories. We've talked about some of the villains, but let's look at the theories. And and from our conversation already, we've discovered that many people had access to the princes and they could have smothered or murdered them. But let's talk about the theory. And you've kind of hinted at it a little bit that they could have died from illness and that maybe their bodies had to be hidden. Yeah. um, So, I mean, I should probably just point out that the idea that lots of people had access is my idea. Some people will tell you that nobody had access. Um, So yeah, their their health. So there is nothing that we have to suggest that either of them were in ill health. That doesn't mean there couldn't have been an an outbreak of the plague. You know, we know the sweating sickness comes over not long afterwards um, and is fairly lethal. There are regular outbreaks of the plague 
in London. So we can't rule out the fact that something like that happened. We know that Edward V is visited by his doctor, um, John Argentine, um, because he later goes on to to be in exile with Henry Tudor and ends up being um, physician at the Tudor court to Prince Arthur and people like that. But I think we also have to remember that at this point for a, a royal person to be seeing a doctor doesn't necessarily point to illness. And we get all the stories of, of Henry VIII being surrounded by his doctors checking his bodily functions all of the time. Um, I think it's kind of routine for these people to to see physicians and to be given all kinds of potions and lotions and concoctions. What we can say is that there's no sign in the build-up to the events of 1483 that there's any concern for Edward V's health. Um, we do see talk in some theories that he had some kind of jaw condition that could have been um, bone cancer or something like that that killed him. But Edward IV had literally... A couple of months before he died, he created a new set of ordinances for the household of the Prince of Wales. And nowhere in those is there any sign that any provision is being made for ill health in the heir to the throne or that Richard, Duke of York, is is being stepped up in terms of preparations that he may have to take over the role because there's fears for Edward V's health. So I don't think there's any long-term medical problem that leads to their deaths. I don't think we can read too much into Edward V being seen by his doctor but we can't rule out you know, something like the plague happening. Although I would think if something like that happened, that Richard III may well have thought, well, you know, I've got nothing to hide. I'll display the bodies. I'll prove that there's been no harm done to them. We'll mourn them. And that's, that's that done away with. Then no one can use them against me ever again. So the idea that they would die of natural causes and Richard would hide it um, – doesn't really stack up to me, especially when there are rumours that he's done away with the princes that are, are bad for his reputation. If he could show that they had died of something that wasn't his fault. And I guess even if there were rumours, you know, if people said, oh, probably he's definitely done away with them, people would know they were dead. So the, the lack of displaying any bodies is a big argument for me against Richard being involved in their murders, because yes, it would be distasteful to display the bodies of two small children, but it was nevertheless the way that you showed that people were dead and bodies were normally displayed to show that there was no harm that had been done to them. So Edward II, Henry VI, people like that, you know, their bodies were displayed in an effort to show that no harm had come to them, even if it had. Um, so why wouldn't Richard want to display the bodies? And if if the problem is that these boys are still the focuses of threats, then natural causes might well work in his favour. Um, but even if he murdered them and could make it look like natural causes, why not display the bodies and tell everybody, isn't it a shame, but they're dead now, you can't use them against me? We, the one story um, that I feel conflicted about, <laughs> and I think it's because you, as a person, you just want it to be true. And that's the, the story of Prince Richard or the Duke of York escaping the tower and that he was indeed Perkin Warbeck. Yeah. So see, we've got the word escape there again. You know, <laughs> who does he escape from? I, in my mind, see, in my theory, Richard hides the boys um, either both in the north of England or I mean, one of the thing about the princes in the tower is we tend to think of them as this kind of single unit but in fact, they were boys who'd been brought up completely differently and separately and apart. So Edward V has been brought up for the last 10 years on the borders of Wales. 
and Richard Duke of York has been brought up in London, so or around court. So separating them wouldn't have been anything traumatic for them, and there's no need for, to keep them together. So I think there's a strong possibility that Edward V could have gone to the north of England to one of Richard's castles there, and Richard Duke of York could have gone over to, to Burgundy, to Margaret of York, Richard's sister, who is the, the sibling that he's closest to. Um, so Richard, George and Margaret are the three who are closest in age and who grew up together. Um, so Richard would know that his nephew, the Duke of York, would be safe with Margaret, but also not in a position to be used as a threat against him. Margaret would want to preserve Richard III's throne at this point, I think. Um, so there's not necessarily the need for them to have escaped um, Richard could have looked after them. And then when Henry comes to the throne, nobody's going to want Henry Tudor to get his hands on the princes in the tower because they're a threat to him then. Even if he wasn't ruthless enough to do away with them, people may have feared that he would. So they could have been kept in hiding at that point, um, which would feed into Perkins' story, um, I think, about being moved to the continent in the care of two men um, who eventually one dies and one abandons him. Um and I think I think I'm quietly convinced by Perkins' story, so we can't prove anything definitively. Um, and Nathan Amin has a new book coming out on the pretenders to Henry Tudor's throne in in February, which I'm looking forward to. It's very definitely the counter argument to to my position. So I'm looking forward to reading what Nathan has to say about um, Lambert Simnel, Perkin Warbeck, um, and the, those who threatened Henry Tudor. So. I'm quietly convinced by Perkin. I suspect he was genuine. I suspect that the confession that he gives is something that's that's written for him and laid in front of him when he's captured and he's told to sign it. Um, we know that he was um, beaten. So even if he gave that confession, it was given under duress and under torture, which to a modern audience would make it completely unreliable and, and inadmissible as evidence. Um to, oh, yeah, I I want Perkin to be real, I think. Um, but I I strongly believe that there's a strong chance that Perkin was the genuine Richard Duke of York, but I can't say that he was or he wasn't. Mm, I want him to be as well. But when I think of it that way and I go, okay, he could be Richard. Well, he came back as Perkin and here's his sister married to the current King of England. And what an uncomfortable situation for Elizabeth of York to be in. Yeah, but but I also think that explains an awful lot. So after Perkin is captured um, at Bewley Abbey, um, we know that he stays in the West Country for a while and Henry goes back to London kind of to prepare the way for Perkin to come to London. Perkin is beaten around the face and particularly around the eye. Um, we get at least two sources that talk about his eye being all but destroyed um, by the regular beatings that he had. So was this to, to mask the fact that he looked a lot like a son of Edward IV, that he maybe even looked a lot like Richard, Duke of York, who was a recognisable face in London as the, the one of the princes who was raised at court and around London and lots of Edwardian Yorkists were still at the court of Henry VII. So they would have known this boy and potentially would have recognised him. But when Perkin comes to London, he's initially kept under a really loose form of house arrest at Henry's court. And that seems to me a really odd thing to do with a man who has just spent the best part of a decade claiming to be the rightful King of England, that the King would just invite him into the house and say, you know, come and sit and have a cup of tea and a chill for a bit. 
We know that he is kept away from Elizabeth of York. The two never meet as far as we know from anything that's recorded. And in his wife, Henry VII has the perfect person to prove that this boy isn't who he says he is. Elizabeth was brought up with Richard, Duke of York, and knew him incredibly well. And she has a vested interest in the Tudor dynasty by this point. She has a, you know, children who would be threatened by the removal of Henry Tudor from the throne of England. And yet she doesn't come out and say, clearly this person is a fraud. He's definitely not my brother. Um, and it's only after you know, a palace is set on fire and there's some suggestion that that was an effort to encourage Perkin to try and run away as an excuse to imprison him further. Um, but what he does is go and stand outside on the grass and wait till it's safe and doesn't run away. Um, and then he later makes a, an attempt to escape and that's when he's thrown into the tower. And then he gets embroiled in this um, set up plot, I think, with the Earl of Warwick that causes both of them to be executed. But I think Henry VII's initial reaction to take this person who is claiming to be the rightful king of England, who has threatened his throne for several years and take him to the court in a form of loose um, custody is really, really odd, unless it's because his wife won't countenance the execution of her brother. So, you know, can we keep this quiet? Can we keep this on the down low? Can we just let this slide? Um, if he promises not to cause trouble, can he just stay in the household? Otherwise, it's incredibly odd that Henry doesn't execute him. You know, we get this guy um, a few years later, whose surname escapes me, Ralph. It was Ralph someone. He claims to be Edward Earl of Warwick. And Henry literally arrests him and executes him immediately. So we get very different responses to Perkin Warbeck and this later imposture of, of the Earl of Warwick. Um, can that be explained by the fact that Henry didn't want to execute his brother-in-law? He didn't want to upset his wife? I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> Such an intriguing time. I can, you know, I'm looking forward to Nathan's book as well to see what he has to say, especially about Perkin. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, like I say, it's, it's very much the, the counter argument to the, the point that I make or the position that I take up. And I think it's always important to read other opinions and other um, arguments and other interpretations of those events, because otherwise, how can you check your own opinion? You know, if you, if you talk into an echo chamber where everyone agrees with you, you never learn anything. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to, to Nathan's book and seeing what I can take away. Maybe Nathan's book will convince me that I've got this wrong and that Perkin was a fraud. Um, but unfortunately, you know, as with all of these things, I think we just lack the evidence to be 100% certain either way at the moment. Well, thank you so much for talking about the princes with us today. No problem. I hope I haven't gone on too much. Um, it's one of my favorite topics to waffle away about. So it's such a deep and complex issue. I think it's just one of those things that people, you really need to study it and get to grips with it. Um, there's so much rumor and people get the impression that they know what happened. But I think if you look into it just a little bit deeper, there's so much more there to get your teeth into. It's it's fascinating. And you've kept yourself quite busy in 2020, especially. You were on this podcast a few times. You helped out with the tutor course. You became an expert contributor on History Layer. You published a book. You started doing some virtual talks. What have I missed? That does make me sound really busy, doesn't it? I feel like I've sat around doing nothing for 2020, like most people. Um I did a couple of, of documentaries for Dan Snow's History Hit as well. So one is on the survival of the princes in the Tower, um, my my book, um, and the other is on people who escaped from the Tower of London. 
Um, so I was incredibly lucky to get a day filming at the Tower of London when it was actually closed to the public. So it was um, me, um, a couple of film crew and half a dozen beef eaters. And that was it. It was a really spooky, surreal, um, but amazing experience. Um, so if anyone wants to, you can get a, a free uh, trial at History Hit uh, and catch a couple of those as well as a couple of talks that I've done previously that are on there. Um, I got into BBC History magazine a couple of times, which is a big deal for me. Um, their December issue was a front page story about Richard III um, being a progressive legislator, um, which I think was a, a massive um, win for me to get a positive article about Richard III on the front cover of BBC History magazine. So, yeah, you know, it's been a, a busy and eventful year. So if someone listened to our chat today, even if it was just one person out there listening, what would you tell them about studying history? I think there's definitely more than one person listening, unless I've waffled so much that everybody is turned off by this point. Um, but if you are still out there, listener, um, I always say, I think history is essentially asking questions. When we stop asking questions, we stop really studying history. So we have to keep asking when we read sources, who is telling me this? Why are they telling me this? When are they writing this? Why do they want me to believe their version of events? And I think that's particularly true around stuff about Richard III, because so much of what's written about him comes later, um, after his reign. Um, and I think it's always important to bear in mind all of these questions. Who is writing this source? Why are they telling me this? When are they writing it? Keep asking those questions. Why do you believe that? Why do you think that's true? Where's the evidence to prove this? And I think those are the questions that just keep you going and going and going. Um, and sometimes it's surprising the things that you can uncover that are generally accepted as historical facts, but aren't actually backed up by any of the evidence. So um, if you'll excuse me, waffling a little bit longer, when I was writing my biography of Richard III, um, the events of the the infamous meeting at the the Tower of London on the 13th of June that Lord Hastings gets killed at. We have all the famous stories of Thomas Stanley being involved in the scuffle that happens, getting um, you know a blow to the head and all of those kinds of things. But there is not a single contemporary source that says Thomas Stanley was at that meeting. All of those sources appear in the 16th century. And I suspect that Thomas Stanley inserted himself into the, the story of that day to try and boost his credentials as someone who had been loyal to Edward V and anti-Richard III. Um, you know, Thomas Stanley, a you know, fortnight after that council meeting, is a, a prominent place at the coronation in high favour. Um, so it just never quite added up. So his, his, um, his attendance at that meeting has generally been accepted for a long time, but you can't find a single contemporary source that lists him amongst those who were at the meeting. Well, Matthew, thank you so much again for being on today's. And where can people find your books and how can they stay connected to you? Well, thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. It's been great to come on and talk again. Um, my books are hopefully available in all of the usual places um, at bookshop.org. I've set up a shop there um, with all of my books in it um, and I get a little bit of extra money if anyone buys them from there. Um, but they should be on Amazon as well. They're available from publishers from Amberley or Pen and Sword or the History Press. Um, and I love talking to people on social media about all of this stuff. So I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I've got a YouTube channel, um, with all sorts of videos about mainly Richard III stuff, um, and Princes in the Tower stuff, but hopefully some other interesting stuff about on this day and, and that kind of thing as well. Um, and I am regularly all over Facebook and Twitter, uh, arguing with people about Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. 
And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.